you are seated, why don't you bow with me and let's pray. God, it's a moving day to sing a song like that, an incredibly challenging song, as those of us who are thinking about the words know, what a challenge to think that we surrender all. Certainly, Lord, there are things about our lives that are unsurrendered here today, especially things we might not even know about, but Lord, it is a, a great challenge to us to believe that as best possible, given your spirit who lives within, we can lay our lives down for you and for your glory. And so, God, as we've been reminded of that today in song and in baptism, and now in your word, would you speak to our minds and hearts, convict us, encourage us, challenge us. And, Father, we will live for you. That, that's our promise back, that as we learn more about you, we'll be men and women of integrity who live out what we know to be true. And so, God, receive this next portion of our worship. Be pleased with the, the teaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll look up here on the screen. What do uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address, William Wallace's Freedom Speech, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream Speech, JFK's famous statement about putting a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s, the Declaration of Independence, and even Martin Luther's 95 Theses nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Church all have in common. Well, it's kind of a baiting question. I'm sure they have a lot of things in common, but one of the things that I'm getting at is, is that I think all of these are what we would label above all else kind of statements. That, that what these men talked about in their own respective settings were the kind of statements in, in which they said, above all else, I need you to hear this, above all else, here's what I need you to know. And then they went on to say what they were going to say. And so whether it was Lincoln at Gettysburg or Martin Luther King with I Have a Dream or William Wallace with Freedom or JFK talking about the moon, they are all above all else kind of statements. You see, above all else kind of statements are summary statements. They are kind of line in the sand statements. They're the kind that summarize what is most important at the time and what is most crucial with what lies ahead. They're the kind of statements that we've all used before. They're the kind of statements we use with our kids every once in a while in which we say, if you don't hear anything else from me, kids, hear this. Because above all else, this is what really matters. And most every one of us have had memorable experiences with above all else statements. We know them from history, and we even use them in our daily lives to communicate something that's really important to us, to those around us. And if you can grab onto this today, and I think all of us can, then you can understand what Peter is doing as he wraps up this short little letter that we've been studying here at Scottsdale Bible for the last few months. You see, 2 Peter, the book that we've been studying, is the last letter that Peter would ever write. It's true. These in our effect, his dying words. He knows he's going to die soon. He tells us this in chapter 1. And so he's decided to write a letter to some outpost churches that he hopes they will read and live out. And in so doing, he gives to them, and by us extension, no less than eight key challenges on how to live life. Eight things that tell us how to get the most out of our spiritual walk with God this side of heaven. And as we've gone through chapters 1 through 3 over the last couple of months, we've been looking at these first seven challenges that Peter gives to us. And we've seen that truly they are awesome challenges from a man who knows he's going to die on how we can live life. And today we get to the last challenge. The last four verses of chapter 3, the last few words that Peter would ever pen, these are his final words of his final words. And if ever words were above all else kind of words, these are them. 
And so here is Peter's last challenge, folks. Here is his above all else statement to you and me about what really matters most in the spiritual life. Look up here on the screen. And that is that above all else, make it your life's pursuit to know God. That's what he says. Above all else, before anything else, make it your life's pursuit to know Almighty God. And though this might sound so simple to you, it is profound in the way that Peter lays this out to us and brings this home to us as we end this book. So look at how Peter goes on to share with, the, with us this, again, his final words. Look at the last five verses of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. If you brought a Bible, open up to 2 Peter. We're going to park here for the remaining time today. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We've put the scripture up here on the screen. And just follow along as I read it. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you not get carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. When I was living in uh, Cleveland during my seminary years, about 20 years ago, I was doing my graduate work in Chicago, but living in Cleveland in the summer with my folks, uh, this was in the late 1980s. And I'll never forget one uh, summer morning, I woke up and I was having breakfast with my parents. I think it was a Sunday because we were going to church that day. And uh, we were talking about all the stuff that was going on with evangelical Christianity in the 1980s. Some of you might remember it. My dad and I were talking about how Jimmy Carter had become a born-again Christian 10 years earlier. And that kind of ushered in evangelical Christianity into politics. And we were talking about how Jerry Falwell had started the moral majority. Remember that? And that started the whole culture wars here in our nation. And then we were talking about how Jimmy Baker had just built Heritage USA. Y'all remember that? This huge Christian theme park and Christian retirement you know, community down in the south there. And that really kind of symbolized the commercialization of Christianity at that time. And then we talked about the whole Christian rock scene, because my dad's really into classical music, and you know how Amy Grant was wearing those leopard skin outfits back then, and had gone crossover, and I mean, it was just like, whoa, Christian rock is here, and it's here to stay. So we're talking about all these different things that were going on in the evangelical Christian things that Christians were all into, and my dad looked at me across the table that morning, I'll never forget this as long as I live, and he said this, he said, Jamie, you're studying to be a minister, you're in seminary, and someday you'll be a minister. And he said, don't ever forget, your number one job, your only job in being a minister is to help people know God. He said, that's it. He said, you're going to be tempted to get involved in a lot of different sideshow theologies, a lot of different rabbit trails you could run down. Evangelicals are really good at it. He said, your number one job is to help people know God. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. And folks, he's right. And it's true, it's what Peter's saying, that the primary purpose that God has for us on planet Earth is that we might know Him, that we might learn about Him, walk with Him, honor Him, serve Him. As the great Westminster Confession of Faith says so well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it's true. We've been put here on this earth for the primary purpose that we might know God and learn to find our satisfaction in Him and all that He provides for us. 
That's what Peter is getting at in these closing words of his. That's what he's saying to us above all else. And once you get this, the main question becomes then, how? I mean, how in a world and culture today that gives us so many different spiritual options, have you ever noticed that? And even in an evangelical culture that, as we've already established, has so many sideshow issues and sideshow theologies that you can get involved in, how do we stay focused on this one issue that Peter puts before us on really knowing God? And though there are multiple things that the Bible shares with us, in Peter's closing words here, he shares no less than three. Three key things that are indispensable to any meaningful and take you somewhere kind of walk with God. And the first thing he shares is this, and that is that we know God through our holiness. Did you know that? We know God through our holiness. He couldn't be more clear. Look at verse 14 again. This is how it begins. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, now get this, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Focus on that little phrase, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Folks, almost surely, when Peter's audience originally heard or read these words, they would have thought of a few things. Tell me if this isn't true. First, they would have thought about the Old Testament and how God commanded that only a lamb without spot or blemish could be used as a sacrifice for sin, right? You know your Old Testament. They would have been reminded of Exodus 12 and how God required that the Passover lamb be a one-year-old lamb without spot, without blemish, a perfect lamb, holy and set apart for that purpose. They would have thought of that. And then as they thought further about this, they also would have thought about Jesus and how Peter in the New Testament in his first letter would describe Jesus as a lamb without spot or blemish, the Holy One, also unstained and uncorrupted by the world around him. And then as their neurons continued to fire, they probably would have thought about how just in the last chapter of this current letter, Peter had been talking about the false teachers and in the opposite way said they're full of blots and blemishes as they teach really false things and have fallen into really immoral lifestyles like claiming to be Christians but sinning like crazy. They would have thought of that. They're blots and blemishes. You get the picture. Carrying this word picture of blots and blemishes from the Old Testament to the New, they would have thought about holiness. That's what this picture contains. Without spot or blemish, it would have connoted to them this idea, this call to be holy. And then combining this with the call to be found by him in such a way as to have a certain level of holiness in their lives, they would then realize and make the link that holiness is one of the key ways that we know God this side of heaven. And it's true. You see, folks, holiness is simply becoming like God in all our actions and behaviors. There's no way around it. Holiness is a moral thing. It's a lifestyle thing. It's setting your life apart from the world around you in such a way that you act and behave differently from them. You act and behave in such a way that connotes you being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I've heard so many sermons over the years on holiness, and people try to, you know, sort of take the edge off of holiness and say, well, it's a relational thing, and it comes by grace, and that's all true. We'll get to that in a minute. But the reality is you can't get away from the fact that at the end of the day, holiness by its very nature is a behavioral entity. It simply means that you act like a Christian. You act as one who's a follower of Jesus. You act like him. 
And it doesn't mean that you have to become a legalist in your faith, somehow trying to earn God's love by your actions, or even seeing the sum total of your faith as a behavioral thing. That's not the idea. But it's simply realizing that there is a behavioral component to one's walk with God, a moral component. And so instead of becoming that proverbial hypocrite, you do your best to be like God and Jesus in all that you say and do. And Peter's point is simple and clear, that it's through holiness that we know God, that we become like him, and that we even draw closer to him. I love how G.K. Chesterton once said it. Look up here on the screen. He said it this way. He said, men do not differ much about what things they call evils. They differ enormously about what evils they will call excusable. (laughs) And I think he's right. I mean, think about it. You and I do not differ nor struggle on what is right and what is wrong, right? I mean, especially as Christians, but even with many in the culture today, I mean, we might squabble with a few things, but Romans tells us that that written on people's conscience, whether they're Christians or not, are right and wrong. And so, so most of us know what is right. We know what is wrong. What we struggle with, and tell me if this is not true, is that we have this uncanny ability to justify our actions as somehow not a big deal. And Christians are really good at this, especially Christians living in America in the 21st century. And yet the flip side of this is that once we hear and respond to God's call to be holy, we find ourselves truly at peace, like we finally found the sweet spot in our lives and have truly come home, and then God uses us to even help others find their way home as well. Holiness, this idea of behaviorally becoming like God draws us to him, and it even draws others to him. That's the idea. That's why we are holy. There's an amazing study done from 1991 to 2007, 16-year study done by Fuller Seminary's School of Intercultural Studies in which they surveyed 750 Muslims who had converted to Christianity. I don't hear many stories like that, and so this was a fascinating study. They survey represented 50 different ethnic groups from 30 different countries, 750 Muslims, and their number one question to them was, why did you convert to Christianity? What was the main motivating factor for you becoming a Christian and making such a significant switch? And though they listed the nine top things here in this study, I want to read for you the first three because this really speaks to our point and should blow us away. Number one reason that a Muslim converted to Christianity is that the Christians around them practiced what they preached. Number two, Christians around them appeared to have loving marriages in which the women were treated as equals. Number three, the Christian-to-Christian violence around them was less prominent than the Muslim-to-Muslim violence around them. Only when you get to number five do they even talk about something doctrinal. By number five, it talks about the fact that, yeah, they read the Quran and they read the Bible, and the Bible tended to make more sense and speak more to the truth issues of their heart. But I found it fascinating that the number th- top number three reasons that somebody would convert to Christianity from a Muslim background all had to do with our holiness. It had to do with what they saw in the Christians around them. And just give me a head nod. Isn't that how life works? I mean, most of us are convinced about the truth of something, yes, intellectually, but also because we see it working in the lives of those around us. What Peter is saying is that holiness works. When you commit to developing a lifestyle, when you commit to developing an obedience level in which you do what God asks you to do, you're going to be drawn closer to him, kind of like a kid who pleases his own father this side of heaven, and you're going to help others find him as well. It's the first thing he wants us to know about how we truly know God. Now, 
Peter's not done yet, not even close. So notice a second way that he tells us that above all we can know God, and that is that we know God through his word. We know him through his word. So look at what he goes on to say in verses 15 to 16 and then a little part of 18 of this last letter. He says, And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And he does so in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Then verse 18, but grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now folks, I got to tell you, this passage that we're looking at right now is probably, well clearly, one of the most powerful and revealing passages in all of the New Testament. And you say you're overstating the case. No, I'm not. It's true. And the reason that this is so is because what Peter is doing here is communicating as well as affirming that what Paul the Apostle had just been writing, like the New Testament, at least 13 letters that would comprise almost half of the New Testament, is nothing more and nothing less than Scripture, on par with all the other Scriptures from the Old Testament that they rallied around at that time. Peter is affirming here that what Paul was writing was and is God's Word to us. You see, when Peter says here that God had given Paul wisdom, do you see that there in verse 15? He says he had given him wisdom. Please know, that's not like the wisdom that you and I get from God. Uh, The wisdom you and I get from God is what we call an active tense wisdom, where we ask God for wisdom. We kind of pull a James 1.5, if you read that passage, and we pray for wisdom, and we seek it out, and God gives it, which is a good thing. But it's interesting, in our verse here, verse 15 of 2 Peter 3, this is a passive tense verb, which simply means that Paul was the passive recipient of a wisdom he was not looking for from God. God foisted it upon him without Paul even asking for it and said, write this down. Because like generations from here on out need to know what I'm about to say because it's going to become a key part of their Bible. Do you see that, folks? Theologians call this a divine passive, the kind of wisdom that God gives us. And if that were not enough, then verse 16 here in our passage, Peter goes on to link Paul's writings alongside, and I quote, the other scriptures. It's a Greek word, graphis, which literally means writings, almost always referring to the Old Testament writings that they all knew to be God's word back then. Don't miss this, folks. Peter is placing alongside the Old Testament the other scriptures, Paul's writings, giving them equal billing in their importance and in their place as God's word to us. And so when you add all of this up, you realize that Peter is telling them, and by extension us, and it's literally one of the earliest attestations that God's revelation was not done with the Old Testament. That with the coming of Jesus, there was more to write, and these guys were writing it. And then he brings it all to a head in verse 18, which is on the screen behind me, when he says, now grow in this knowledge. Grow in this knowledge. Grow in your understanding and living out of this revelation to you because it's right in front of you. How do you know him? How do you learn more about him and understand him in such a way that a father would his, or a child would his father? You do so by knowing him. Peter says, in his word. And all I can say is that what a challenge this is to you and I, especially living in 21st century American culture. I want to show you how this works, um, because this is really important that we see what's happening in our culture today when it comes to this idea of knowing God in his word. 
In 2007, just two years ago, George Gallup, the famous pollster, did a survey of Americans and revealed that 31% of Americans, not Christians, but Americans, believe that the Bible is, and I quote, literal and inerrant. He further found that another 10% of Americans believe that the Bible is the literal Word of God. And then an astounding 26% of Americans, additionally, believe that the Bible to be inspired by God. And so using all these different phrases, when you add it up, he says whether you see the Bible as literal or inerrant, or as the Word of God or inspired by God, at the very least, the vast majority of Americans believe the Bible to be a holy book given to us by God, right? And so this might be why in a recent 2008 Harris survey that, that polled 2,500 Americans, that once again, the Bible was the number one favorite book of Americans polled. That when they said, what's your favorite book? The Bible always hits the number one favorite. Right next to, by the way, Gone with the Wind and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is true, which I thought was kind of funny too, because I thought, you know, hey, Gone with the Wind, the Bible, I'll choose the Bible. So that's a good thing. So Americans are really into the Bible. We see it as coming from God, and it's our favorite book. But interestingly, then in the same year that Gallup did this study in 2007, Kelton Research was conducting a similar study in anticipation of a new animated release of the Ten Commandments, and they found that 80% of their respondents knew that a Big Mac had two all-beef patties, that 62% knew that it had pickles, but less than 50% of these same respondents could name seven of the Ten Commandments. Isn't that interesting? And even more surprising is that they found that most people polled could remember the name of all four of the Beatles, but less than that could remember only one of the Ten Commandments. So grab onto this, folks. you got a culture and society that overwhelmingly believes that the Bible is God's book to us, but doesn't know it very well. Even simple things like the Big Ten. And I would submit to you that there is a correlation then between our lack of knowledge about His Word and truth to us and the fact that many of us don't feel like we really know Him. If you don't hear anything else today, just put that link together. That's the point, that all of us like this book. We probably have one on our coffee table or bookshelf or, gosh, check into any hotel room. We'll find it in the drawer. But the reality is, is that we just don't know it very well. And the point is, well, then maybe we don't know God very well. That's what Peter's getting at here. Uh, let me bring it home this way. Let me ask you, how many of you know here today, let me see a hand raise, what the prime meridian is? Raise your hand if you know what the prime meridian is. A lot of you students do, which is really cool. Give me another click here, guys. Uh, the prime meridian is kind of like the cousin to the equator. Uh, the prime meridian is that imaginary line that divides the world longitudinally. You can go and, and see it in England. You can visit it. I mean, it's not like an absolute visible line, but you can see they drew a symbolic line there. It's a line that runs through England, France, Spain, Western Africa, and all the way down to Antarctica. And along with the equator, which divides the world latitudinally, we can divide our world into four hemispheres that we all know, north, south, east, and west. And though this might not seem like a big deal to you, it is because the prime meridian and the equator allow all human beings to utilize an agreed-upon map and to plot coordinates and to find our exact place in the world at any given time and even to know what time it is in any given time. It's a prime meridian that gives us our time zones because it's kind of, you know, uh, the dead center zero place. It's where Greenwich Mean Time is. And so it's through this prime meridian 
that we can now have an agreed-upon sense of where we are at any given moment. And before this, before the end of the 19th century, when they all agreed upon this prime meridian, there were multiple places that people declared as zero degrees longitude, and so there were all kinds of different maps that didn't agree, and this caused immense confusion, but the prime meridian has become the central unifying focal point from which all direction takes its cues. And guess what? Peter is saying that the Bible is very much our prime meridian on a spiritual level. I mean, think about it, folks. It's the Bible that allows us to navigate this world with lots of direction. It's the Bible that allows us to know where we are on a spiritual level at any given moment. Whether you're a seeker who needs to be convicted of sin, whether you're a new believer who now needs to grow in Christ, whether you're a veteran believer who's dealing with the mundaneness and the, the placid nature of your faith and needs to get rejuvenated, this book will help you know where you are and where you need to go at any given moment. It's even the dividing line when it comes to things like salvation and truth and our understanding of God and each other. It's what gets us, gives us our bearings. In short, I love how Elias Boudinot, an early statesman here in America and the head of the Continental Congress in the 1780s once put it, look up here on the screen. He said, were you to ask me to recommend the most valuable book in the world, I should fix on the Bible as the most instructive, both to the wise and the ignorant. Were you to ask me for one affording the most rational and pleasing entertainment to the inquiring mind, I should repeat it. It's the Bible. And most interesting history, I should still urge you to look into your Bible. He says, I would make it, in short, the alpha and the omega of knowledge. So let me ask you here this morning, folks. Is this book the alpha and the omega of your knowledge? Is it? Is it your prime meridian? I mean, as I said earlier, many, many people in our country, and this is a good thing, I'd, I'd like to have it no other way, uh, think that this book and know this book comes right from God. But as we've also seen, we also live in a country that's becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. And even an evangelical subculture that's becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. And yet the one who truly knows God, and I mean knows him like you would know your best friend, is the one who knows him through his word. And so track where we've come from this morning. Above all, we're seeing make it your life's pursuit to know God. And we know him through our holiness, and we know him through his word. And lastly, but certainly not least, Peter makes clear that we know him by growing in grace. You're going to love this one. We know him by growing in grace. Look at how Peter wraps all of this up in verse 18. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I love that phrase, grow in grace. It's like a grace-filled phrase about grace. And that word grow here is the Greek word auzano. And get this, it literally simply means to move forward, to increase in something. The opposite of this would be somebody who's just standing still like this. That word grow simply means that you're moving forward and you're moving up. It's a progressional term that Peter's using here. And it's a present tense imperative verb, which is very interesting because it's a command. He's saying grow, but he's saying grow in what? Grow in your grace when it comes to your understanding of God and Jesus. Grow in grace. Keep moving forward on that. And so the question becomes, what's grace? Best definition of grace I can give you is this. It's God's unconditional love and favor shown to you. 
Man, that's all some of you need to hear this morning. It's God's unconditional love and favor shown to you. It's a fact that no matter what you have done, no matter how far you've strayed, God still loves you and he has come for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And what is so cool about this concept, this reality of grace, is that every New Testament writer was like obsessed, overdosed on this thing called grace. I mean, you can read the Bible. Almost every letter in the, in the New Testament begins and ends with grace. Have you ever noticed that? Like they'd start it. They'd start off every letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then you get to the end of the letter and says, oh, by the way, don't forget grace. I think they're trying to tell us something there. It's like an above all kind of statement. And that's Peter's point here, is he's saying, above all else, grow in grace. It's his closing words to us. He's saying, without an increasing understanding of his awesome love for you and his unmerited favor shown to you, you're not going to go know God. But grow in this, focus and relish on his amazing love and mercy for you each and every day, and you will know God like you never thought possible. I want to do one last thing before we close here today, and that, is, and that is this. I want to show you how grace truly, truly brings everything that we've talked about together. And what I mean by that is that, is that if you followed where we've gone today, we've talked about holiness, that behavioral thing, that obedience thing in which we need to live up to the measure of the faith that we claim, right? Kind of a harsh challenge. And then we've seen the Word. Oh man, I gotta read more. And I gotta read and I gotta understand and I gotta study and I gotta know God on that, that level. And so again, another great challenge. But then all of a sudden, it's like Peter switches massive gears. He says, but grow in grace. And, and the question we gotta wrestle with is why does he do that? Why does he switch gears so significantly? And, and there's a real important reason why and you're not gonna wanna miss this because it's grace that pulls all of this together. Uh, look up here on the screen. 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine said this. He said, and I quote, nothing whatever in the way of goodness pertaining to godliness and real holiness can be accomplished without grace. Boy, that's a keeper statement. Nothing whatever in the way of goodness pertaining to godliness and real holiness can be accomplished without grace. And I think he's right. I think what he's getting at here, folks, is that without grace, without getting and living God's manifold mercy and love to you no matter what, then holiness isn't going to mean very much for you. It won't even take you very far. Neither will knowledge. All the knowledge about the Bible that you might get when it comes to truly knowing God. Grace is what pulls it all together. It makes sense of everything else that God asks us to do. And so look up here on the screen. I want to share with you a few phrases, lines, understandings that I've learned over the years that have helped me become the man who's so obsessed on grace that I am today. Maybe this will help you. Uh, check these out. Holiness without grace will become legalism. It's true. Knowledge without grace will become dead orthodoxy. But to put it positively, grace, you see, turns holiness into joy and knowledge into intimacy. Do you see that, folks? One of my great fears whenever we talk about holiness is that people just stop at holiness and, be, and, and just simply assume that being a Christian means changing lifestyles and now just becoming more moral in their life, then guess what? You will become a legalist and you'll not have a lot of joy and you really won't know God like your heart wants to. I promise you, I've been there. And it's the same with knowledge. As much as I'm a reader and I love to read and I love his word and I can't get enough of it, if knowledge stops and doesn't add grace to it, then it's going to become dead orthodoxy. You're simply going to know the right things, but you're not going to have an intimacy with God. 
as your father, as Paul would say in Romans 8, your Abba. You won't call him that. But you see, grace turns holiness into joy and knowledge into intimacy. And some of you, because you're just starting to get this, are saying, why? What, what is it about grace that does that? Now listen very close. Because grace is all about relationship. Grace assumes a relationship with the person that you're experiencing grace from. Grace assumes that you're relating to God as a father, that you know he loves you, that even when you mess up, even when all those warts and pimples that you still have after 40 years of walking with God, that God still looks at you and says, yeah, I wish you changed, but I love you. You're my son, you're my daughter, and I'm never giving up on you. That's grace. And when you get that from God, when you finally understand that, it does nothing but draw you to him. I mean, you get that and you go, whoa, I want to know him. And I want to know him more. He loves me. How can I not love him back? That's what grace does for us. Grace draws in our holiness. It draws in our knowledge. And it turns it into joy. And it turns it into intimacy. And it's what many Christians today are missing in their understanding and experience of God. They really haven't gotten the fact that he loves you that much. And that there's nothing, as Paul says in Romans 8, that you can do that can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. It's not a conditional thing anymore. In Christ, it's now unconditional in his love and care for you. Does that not fire you up? I mean, if I didn't have that, I'm telling you folks, I would not be up here on this stage right now. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be a pastor. I wouldn't be a Christian if it wasn't for grace. It's that powerful. Uh, many of you know the story of the prodigal son. Give me a hand raise. You know the story of the prodigal son, right? Yeah, it got one of the most popular stories, right? That and the Good Samaritan makes you a Bible expert. Everybody knows that story. And, and, and one of the things that, that's kind of sad about the story of the prodigal son is that we focus so much on the younger son, right? Which is kind of cool. But as we close right now and wrap up, I want us to focus on the older brother for just a second. Because you see, you know the story about two brothers, one father, and a rich family. And the younger brother, the bratty younger brother, says to his uh, dad, uh, I want my inheritance like now before you're dead, right? Which was like unheard of back then. It's unheard of today. You just don't do that. But the father decides to show grace and mercy, gives the son his portion of the inheritance. Son goes off, squanders it on wine, women, and song, hits rock bottom, comes back, and asks, God, or asks his father to forgive him and to show him grace and bring him back to the family. And as we all know, the father does so. He's so excited that his young son is back, even though all the money is gone. And, uh, and, he, and he throws a huge party. And, and he throws his party, and everybody's there, and they kill the fatted calf, and his father's just shown incredible mercy on him. And the older son at that time, who stayed back at the farm, who worked the farm, who was the obedient, faithful kid, is out in the field working. And, and as soon as he hears the party, he asks the servant, what's going on? And the servant says, oh, man, your younger son is back, and dad is so glad. He's throwing a party for him. It's the biggest party of the year. Come on in, let's celebrate. And as we all know, the older son says, yes. Oh, I'm so glad that my father showed this kid grace, and I'm so excited for him. Let's go in and party, right? No, that's not what happens, right? The older son does what many of us would do. He says, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, this son comes back. Tell me dad's being hard on him. Tell me dad's lecturing him. Tell me that dad's doing some form of discipline. I mean, make him sleep in the barn or something. Tell me he's not really throwing a party for him. So he says, yeah, he's throwing a party for him. He says, I'm not going to that party. He goes, I refuse. So he's standing outside, right? And as we all know, the story ends with the father coming out. And the father looks at the son. And the story kind of ends without resolve. The father looks at the son and he says, son, you don't understand. He goes, everything that I have is yours. Which, by the way, just to increase your Bible knowledge, that was a very true statement because the younger son wasn't going to get any more inheritance, right? So most Bible scholars point out that truly everything was going to eventually be the older son someday. He goes, everything I have is yours. 
He says, but you don't get grace. He says, you think it's all still about works. You think it's all about your performance. You think it's all about your faithfulness and all that. And that's all good that you're that way. He said, but your younger son was lost and now he's found. And I get a chance to demonstrate grace and mercy to him, which is what really greases the skids of life. And he said, I wish you could see that, that I could wish that you could see that I show you grace too, and that let's all go celebrate the grace that's been shown there. And then the story ends. And we have no idea what the older son does. We have no idea if he says, gee, Dad, you're right. I'm an idiot. Let's go in and party. I mean, we have no idea what happens. But the point is not lost on us, in it? Now, I get this, that the story ends with the younger son estranged from his father, at least in that moment relationally, mad at him, kind of that wall between them, the younger son not parting, the younger son miserable. Why? Because he refused to join the party of grace. And I think that was Jesus' point. Is it for those of us who refuse to join the party of grace, who refuse to enter into the joy of the Father when it comes to the grace that he shows them and shows us, we might still be on the farm, we might still be good, faithful, and obedient, but we're miserable, we're outside the party, and there's a distance between us and the Father. That's what Jesus' point was. And I don't know about you guys, but ever since I became a Christian 30 years ago, that was kind of like my younger son experience. I've been the older son ever since then. How about you? I've been the one who stayed home on the farm, and I've worked hard, and I've been faithful. Or at least as a buddy of mine says, semi-faithful, because who of us can claim total faithfulness, right? But I've been faithful more than most. And uh, the reality is, there's many times where I tend to say I'm obedient, I'm a man of the word. But then I forget that God says, but grow in grace, Jamie. Grow in grace, because it's, it's my grace that's going to turn your holiness into joy and your knowledge of the word into intimacy with you. That's what God does, and that's how we know him. One of the cool things that attracted me to this church two years ago was stories that I heard about how Daryl shepherded all of you for 25 years. And I know that, that Daryl's a lot of things, but one thing that he is awesome at is just a really good-hearted shepherd and a great teacher of the word. One of the stories people told me is that when people would say they want to plant a church or come to town newly planting a church, that what would happen is, is that Daryl would bring them up here on the stage, you guys remember this, and he'd say, hey, someone's so planting a church, isn't it exciting? And let's pray this guy on, and I think all of you should go with him to plant this church. Which is like the kiss of death. No one does that across the nation, right? You just don't do that. That's just so quintessential Daryl to be so excited about what God is doing in other parts of the city and not threatened by that. And I thought that was just so awesome. And I said, that's the kind of church I'd like to be at, and I'd like to continue that legacy. So Dan, come on down with your group. About uh, four months ago, Dan Scruggs, who's one of our sitting elders, came to the elder board, and he said, um, I want to plant a church. He, he said, God put it on my heart about five years ago. I've been kind of putting it off. But he said, I, I do not want to someday go to glory and have God say to me, why didn't you listen to me? And he said, I, I have a very, very strong passion to plant a church. And so we said, well, Dan, what, what is it? Tell us about this church you want to plant. He said, well, it's going to be a, a church for those that are hurting, a church that really reaches out to those who maybe are a bit more marginalized in culture and don't know Christ yet and haven't found a good church home. He said, I want to have a church that follows his direction, that focuses on spiritual maturity and his word, and then finishes well with community service. That's their, their vision. And you guys need to know that Dan has been an elder in very good standing in our church. He's been a member of Scottsdale Bible Church for 14 years. He's a licensed pastor. We licensed him here at this church because he has his own parachurch ministry that does Bible studies and teachings in the community. 
He's been an enrichment class leader in this church. He's been involved in our men's ministries. He's involved with Peacemakers Internationally, which does reconciliation. He's a Bible college grad working on his master's. I mean, Dan has all the ingredients necessary to be an awesome church planter, and we happen to like him as well and uh, are really for him. And so it was a no-brainer to say, Dan, how can we get behind you? They targeted initially a couple of areas, Rio Verde there in the northeast, um, and, uh, and, and then they finally settled on, on Fountain Hills, which is kind of near there to Rio Verde. And so they've already chosen a start date two weeks from now, or three weeks from now, August 16th, as the start of their church, their first worship service. They're going to be meeting in the Messenger Building there. They already have offices. They have a staff. Uh, God's really, as you'll hear in a minute, provided for them in some wonderfully uh, unique ways. And we just wanted to bring Dan and his entire, well, not his entire team, there's a lot more than this, but Dan and his team up here right now to introduce them to you. And we're going to do two things, we're gonna, three things. We're going to hear from Dan, we're going to pray for him, and then as we put in the bulletin last week, we're going to send them off with a, a love offering, just a, a second offering today that will go directly to North Chapel. That's what they've called their church. And, uh, and, and then we also sent out a letter to about 400 of our members here that are, live in Fountain Hills, and we said, you know, check this out, pray for them, support them, and if God leads you, even unite with them so that we can share the wealth. And so, Dan, I am, as you know, so excited about what the Lord is doing in you and in this church. Uh, you're not as young as most church planters, but that's part of God's unique call, and uh, I think that is just so cool. You've broken the mold in a lot of ways in your life. And uh, why don't you just share with us a little bit about what we can pray for for you and in doing that weave in a, a little bit about your dream for this church. Well, thank you, uh, Jamie. Uh, we covet your prayers, and I want you to know that. Uh, and we have three things that we'd like for you to pray for for us. Uh, one, we'd like for you to pray for people. We'd like to, for you to pray for the people in Fountain Hills, that when we go there, they will embrace us, uh, that their hearts will be opened uh, to us, that their ears will be open to the word uh, as we teach it to them and preach it to them. Uh, secondly is, is that we would ask that uh, you would pray for our, our posture as a church, that we would be servants, uh, we would have servant leadership in this church, that we would go out into the community and serve the people of Fountain Hills with absolutely no agenda other than what our master has told us to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and thirdly, we would ask that you would pray for God's provision for us, that we would be able to sustain this, uh, that we would be able to uh, grow, and that we would be successful in God's eyes. When we started this uh, great journey, when we got the ball rolling back in February, uh, we had no people, uh, we had no place, and we had no money. Uh, now we have people, and we have a place. And two out of three is not bad. <laughs> and that's one of the things that we want to help Dan with, is that God's blessed Scottsdale Bible with a lot of resources. So as the Lord has lifted up some people, and we believe he'll lift up even more from this congregation, and he's provided you a wonderful place and a vision for Fountain Hills, uh, we are going to take up a special offering here in a minute that's going to go directly to North Chapel and hope we'll send you guys off in a good way. Dan, as I said to you before, I'm going to consider you guys a, a sister church. I mean, our partnership just begins now, certainly doesn't end now. And so we want to pray for Dan. And so if you feel led as we pray just to show our unity together, feel free to, to lift your hand uh, toward us here on the stage as a show of unity. And let's bow our hands right now, or bow our heads, lift up our hands, and let's pray for uh, Dan and for North Chapel and his people. 
Father God, um, it really is exciting to have you put a vision and a mission on the heart of a group of people to start a church uh, in a, another area and for us to be a part of sending them out. Lord, it really is an honor and a blessing to do so. And Lord, as you know, we have total affirmation from our elder board, from the staff on Dan's call and, and his ability to lead this church from all the ways that you've grown him over the years. He, he truly is an elder in every sense of the word in our church. And so, Lord, it's going to be our loss, but uh, the kingdom's gain as he and his team go out. God, our prayer would be that your richest blessing would go with them, that God, you would anoint them, that you would give them courage and confidence, but as they have also prayed, just an incredible amount of love. May their focus on people and may the posture that they have truly, Lord, be of you and very Jesus-like. And God, we will pray for their provision and for their success, and that God, as they go out, that they would know that you have provided for them and that you will continue to provide. May they know we have a church here that loves them and supports them and is rooting for them and with them each step of the way. And so, God, we thank you for Dan. We thank you for his team behind him here. Just keep them safe. Keep them uh, just very sensitive to the ploys of the evil one that he would have to, to sabotage their efforts. And may that not happen. May your blessing and your hand of anointing be upon them. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. We'll show your appreciation to these people being up here. Amen. <laughs>